Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today joining us, we have Lynn Robert Berg. Hello, Lynn. Hi, how are you guys doing? So good. So great to have you here today. Great to be here. Now you're joining us from Tahoe. I am. I'm working for the Lake Tahoe Shakespeare Festival. This is, uh, this is my th- uh, seventh season, I think. Yeah. Seventh season out here. Yeah. So wait, seven seasons at Lake Tahoe. How many at Idaho? Uh, oh, God. Um, like nearly, 19? Something like that. 19, I think. And I, I want to say I'm just over or just at 20 at Great Lakes Theater. Yeah, I was going to say, and then yeah. that's the next one. Good, good yeah. gravy. What a perfect segue into the canned bio that we have already. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so, Lynn Robert Berg just completed his 19th season at the Idaho hey. Shakespeare Festival. There we go. Where he recently appeared in Much Ado About Nothing and is a frequent performer at Great Lakes Theater Festival, which is Cleveland's classical theater company. And how many seasons did you say? 20 seasons there? I think 20 or 21. Close to. Yeah. And that includes a long running stint as Scrooge in the annual production of A Christmas Carol. So you are Christmas in the mind. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've been been doing Christmas. I've been doing Christmas Carol since 2003. I started with... um, uh, I, I think I started playing the first charity man and then I moved into the ghost of Jacob Marley. I did that for 11 years. And then I've, I've been doing Scrooge. I think for, I think this coming year will be my seventh. I think Lynn holds an MFA from the university of Delaware professional theater training program. Um, that's Jeffrey Hawkins, Jeffrey mm-hmm. Hawkins, who is, mm-hmm. who is, uh, has many shares, many of the same credits. Yes. Did you all, did you all meet there? We met actually at the Idaho Shakespeare Festival in 1998. Uh, that was both our first seasons. I was um, I was 20, and I won't give his age because that's just polite. Um, <laughs> um, no, no, I was I was 20, and I was still in college. I was I was an, an apprentice, and uh, no, I, yeah, I was an, no, I was an intern. I was an intern actor. I don't remember. Um, long time ago. Uh, but we started at the same time and, uh, and we've been working together ever since we worked there for three years. Then we went to grad school together and then we left grad school at the same time early to go work at Great Lakes Theater for Charlie Fee. And, um, we've been, we've been doing that ever since. So Jeffrey Hawkins goes way back with the state of Shakespeare too. He was a Mm -hmm. guest in the early days, back when we were doing these live in person in rented studios, like Shadler (laughs) Studios in New York city. Wow. Wow. Uh, More about Lynn, Lynn, according, according to some press that we found on the interweb somewhere. Oh no. Lynn, Lynn states, he likes acting because it, quote, forces me out of my comfort zones and to confront the truth of who I am when placed against other characters. Also, it's fun and also it's hard. And we'll return to that statement. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, well, Lynn has appeared, as we've discussed already, in countless productions of Shakespeare at regional theaters all over the country. Um, and rather than go through the list, Lynn, why don't you tell us your favorite three and where they were? Ooh, okay. Um, it's so it's like it's like trying to pick a pick your favorite child or something like that. Uh, or maybe your most memorable. My most memorable. Uh, you know, I got to I got to play uh, the Scottish King uh, about four years ago, and that was that was that was pretty awesome. It was a pretty great production with great people and and. Uh, 
I think Erin Parton, who did a did one of your uh, one yep. of the State of Shakespeare's, uh, she was she was my Lady M, and she was amazing to work with. And that was, was that Idaho. That it was it was one of the uh, Cleveland, Idaho, Tahoe shows. So we did all three cities and um, worked on it for you know five or six months, and that was that was great. That was we closed that show, and I thought I could I could do this another six more months. You know, I'm a I'm a, a a homely character actor, so uh, I, I don't play a ton of of leads. So um, I played Richard the Third. I got to play Caliban one time, which was really fun. I had these barnacles glued on my face, and I had a crab claw, and I scuttled around. I'm, I'm you know I'm six one, and I was scuttling around on the on the stage, uh, trying to be the smallest person on stage, and uh, that was that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. That was something I never thought I'd get to do. I never thought I'd get to do any of this stuff. So, so Lynn, back to mm-hmm. your statement about being a self-professed, homely character actor. <laughs> yes. Now, our listeners are going to hear you as quite handsome. Oh, well, that's, see, that's the trick, isn't it? But the idea of being a homely character, well, we'll post some pictures of you on our website, <laughs> and our listeners can see the incredible range of... Uh, you have a head headshots that that you look like the most sweetest babyest baby face guy you'd ever want to meet and then just add a beard and perfectly terrifying sure um, yeah but being a character actor that's a thing that's a real thing um you know yeah. people, people do have types that that they work in and tell me about tell me about what what that experience is is like for you well when did you <clears> discover <throat> that you're a character actor um, <laughs> well, when I didn't look like a matinee idol and I didn't look like the, uh, the, you know, we, there was a season where we started, they started hiring, um, like really, really, really good looking guys in the, uh, in the company. And I went, Oh, they were like fit and worked out all the time. And like, Oh shit, I gotta, okay. I gotta do something. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta get back <laughs> in the gym and stop, stop, uh, you know, stop eating a lot of pasta. Um, I think actually it was really when I, I'm bald, of course. So it was when I started losing my hair that I, that I thought, oh boy, this is, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I started losing it in college and it was, you know, it's, it's, it was kind of traumatic at the time. Um, but I started to think of it as like, this is all a blank slate, you know, slap a wig on me. I can be different, put a beard, have a grow a beard. I can be completely different makeup, just the, if you have the ability to change your voice and change how you sound, I think that's the, the first step into uh, being more dynamic, more versatile and everything. If that, if you have that kind of flexibility, that's the thing that really excites me is, is changing, changing the way I look, changing the way I sound. That's just interesting for me. You know, just speaking from my own experience, when I graduated and started <clears throat> trying to work professionally, I was coming mm-hmm. from this background where I, I, Innocently and incorrectly thought that I was a character actor. That I was yeah, going to be a character. Garrett's really good looking. He <laughs> is really good looking. He's very good looking. Hey, I'm not going to argue with you about that. <laughs> but that, <laughs> but the, the point I'm, the point I'm trying to make is, you, you know, I would walk into auditions with these wildly out of type mater, material and bring that bring that to the table, and I, and mm-hmm. nobody at any point ever told me, hey, you're barking up the wrong tree here. This is not going to be your thing. You need to think about this other thing. And now that right. I'm as now that I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how or 
even if it's appropriate to have those conversations with my students. But I know for me, it sure would have been helpful if somebody had said, yeah, okay, there are lots of things that you can do, but you can't do everything. So do the thing that it's mm-hmm. going to work for you. I've, you know, that that's, I'm going to elaborate on this. I wish I had a more defined type. The, 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 the sort of blanket character actor thing is also frustrating because it's like, well, I can do that. And I've done that. It's just where I, usually it's where I fit into a company. It's where I fit in to a certain project, you know? Um, and, and a lot of that's just not, out of, that's just not in my control. So uh, I'm, I'm lucky to have gotten to do all the things that I've gotten to do. Well, I do think that one of the things you said is a really important um, part of that, that Gary's talking about, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you went through this hair loss early oh, sure. and you sort of took a look at yourself and you were like, this is who I am and I'm going to make the best of what I have to offer and, yeah. and the sort of the physical attributes that I have, as well as the, um, what people perceive of me, that kind of thing. And I think that to embrace that and to sort of accept that in yourself launches you in a way that uh, a lot of people aren't doing these days because they think that they can be that. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it happened when I was really young too. So it's not like I'm hitting my mid forties going, Oh no, what's going to happen to my career now? It's like, I'm, I'm sort of at the place now where, where I'm because I was bald as a young man and I've got the voice I have, and I've got the look that I have. I was playing, I was playing Sir Anthony absolute in college at 19, (laughs) you know, in the rivals. It's, it, it was like, it was ridiculous. Um, and now I'm I'm in the age where I'm I'm looking at the stuff I'm doing and going I'm exactly where I you know have have always been preparing to be my entire career. Now I'm doing the stuff that I'm like, oh, I don't have to do the makeup for that, or I don't have to pretend more or put more put more stuff on to to make me seem older or seem right for this. Now I'm like, this feels like uh, I'm I'm. I'm where I'm supposed to be. So to have had a career that spans 20 seasons at any repertory company is a, yeah. big, is a big deal and something to hang your hat on as an actor, but you've got 20 years at one, 19 years at another, seven years at another. Mm-hmm. And th- this doesn't happen for, for guys that are hard to work with or that don't have the ability to, to deliver the goods. That's part of being the character actor is like, I can, my flexibility has helped, you know, like they can, I'm, I'm a, a good enough singer that can throw me in a musical. You know, I, I can make myself look different easily. I can fit in in a lot of different places. It's that that is it's so great. Well, that brings that brings to mind another question. You know, you say you have a couple of years mm-hmm. at a theater. You know, you've done a couple of seasons there. You feel like you know the place pretty well. Sure. Yeah. But now you've got a couple of decades mm-hmm. at a place. What does that how is how do the relationships evolve? I remember about in 2014, we were doing uh, a production of, of Mary Wives of Windsor. I was playing uh, Ford in that. And uh, I looked around and went, oh, God, I'm one of the I'm one of the leaders here now. I'm one of the I'm one of the senior members of the company. And it just felt it felt very odd because I still I felt like I'm a child. I have no power. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> this is and I, I remember I remember when I was, when I was playing, when I started playing uh, Scottish King, I called uh, one of my mentors and I went, God, does it ever go away? This feeling of like, I'm just, I'm a 
kid. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm just I'm making this up as I go. And he said, you know, the thing that's really great about what we do is that it keeps us connected to this kind of childlike innocence of like, we're always creating things. It's still pretend, it's still make-believe, it's still play. And um, I, I, still feel, I still feel like a kid at work, which I think is really healthy and really good. It keeps me creative and keeps me engaged. Well, I, I, that's actually interesting to me because you started as an intern and I'm mm-hmm. always, I'm a big proponent of apprenticeships and internships. Yeah, I think absolutely. Really a great starting place. Um, but now you've seen, let's just say 18 to 19 years of interns coming across the stages mm-hmm. of your theaters. Yeah. Um, have you noticed a change in any way um, in those interns or apprentices? It's so the culture of being in the room is changing so much anyway, in the particularly just pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic, it's it's a really, it's a it's it's a different, it's just a different energy. There's a different energy from, you know, artistic management is sort of taken a step back and and the the sort of hierarchy of, well, you've only been doing Shakespeare for you know, six months, or you've, this is your first Shakespeare show or whatever. Um, it, it, it's caused, or it's, it's asked of the room to, to fold everyone in like we're all just starting out at the same time and we're all at whatever level we're at. And, uh, and, and there's much more, I don't know, acceptance and, and uh, there's not, more opportunity for those younger voices to speak and I think it's good. I think it, it's it, it's good for everybody because it gets everyone in the conversation quickly, and uh, and there's less there's less fear from younger actors. There's no they don't feel cowed or they don't feel it. We're all we're all there doing the same job. We're all doing there to we're all there to accomplish the same thing. I think it's really healthy. Well, sure. The other side of the coin here. Now I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man. <laughs> sure. No, please. I've, mm-hmm. I've been I've been teaching long enough to see a, a change sure. happen in the classroom. Where, yes. you know, if I were to walk into a classroom and students are already there, you know, when I started, there's a lot of excited chatter. They're engaging with one another, but it wouldn't be uncommon for me to walk into a classroom these days and students are already in the space, but they're all sitting at their chairs with their heads down and their faces in their phones. Yeah. So it just, there's a, there's a real, real change in the way that young people relate to one another, what they do with their time when they Mm -hmm. have time. And that may be good or bad, but I think that when an ensemble is on stage together, whether it's in a rehearsal or in a performance, the phones are away and the engagement is happening. Yes. I think that that is becoming increasingly valuable and rare. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is, I mean, what, what helps about Tahoe is that uh, we're out, we're up in the mountains. So signals aren't great. So phones are not, <laughs> uh, I mean, phones, phones are still present and everything. We we've been really lucky with the, with the, the group of, of, uh, of young people that we get in because they're all training to, you know, have a career in, you know, in New York doing musical theater and that sort of thing, but they're all workhorses and they all, they all want to be good and they want to, they want to be good and participate in everything they're doing. So, so we're, we're, we've been really lucky having, having uh, artists who are 
already already have a kind of professional mindset. There aren't a lot of people who are like, well, I'm just sort of figuring myself out. And oh, I happen to get into this play and I happen to get this job. And it's 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 exciting. It's exciting to work with people who who at such a young age are have a, a professional mentality. All right. So Lynn, uh, you have brought to the table a uh, very lesser known piece from Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we've been talking, Julius Caesar has been in the national consciousness for a little while. Um, oh boy, ever, yeah. Since, yeah, ever since the uh, production in the park mm-hmm. in New York. Um, why this piece? Why this play? Um, for a practical reason, it's the, it's the last, um, it's the last thing I did before the pandemic. Uh, the, the last Shakespeare I did before the pandemic, we were doing, um, we were rehearsing Much Do About Nothing. The production of Much Do About Nothing that we're doing right now, we were supposed to do two years ago and um, everything got canceled. Um, so that was the last uh, Shakespeare that I performed in front of an audience. I used to call it the dark St. Crispin's Day speech. I, yes, I even it's, have that in our notes. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's Brutus uh, putting a spin on something that is that's uh, pretty awful. I mean, it's 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 murder. It's it's assassination. It's 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 fomenting an insurrection, as it were. You know, it's it's rising up against the government and it's putting a a super positive spin on it. And it's also it's interesting to me too because it's the most passionate I think that Brutus gets in the play. I think it's the I think it's where he it's the height of his of his his idealism and his passion is in this speech. It, it's the contrast between him and the the rest of the team. The rest of the team they're looking for power or they're or they're they're bent out of shape about about Caesar. And this is this is Brutus uniting them around something that's that's better or trying to say that what they're doing is better than what they're actually doing. Just to, for some context, it's act two, scene one. They're saying mm-hmm. we, need, we need to like take an oath with each yep. other. Yep, um, exactly. Uh, to, and, and, but what's the oath for? Is it to an oath to go ahead and kill Caesar or is it an oath for post killing Caesar? It's the oath for them to, to get behind this project, to get behind this plot. It is the oath to, let let's 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 swear it that we're going to do it and and Bruce is saying we don't we don't have to we don't have to swear anything because this is from our blood this is from who we are as romans we don't need to swear people who swear they're swearing on on lost causes or they're swearing on they're swearing out of fear we don't need to be afraid this is not a lost cause we are we we just need to do it because we we're in the right You want to do the speech? Let's do it. Yeah. No, not an oath. If not the face of men, the sufferance of our souls, the time's abuse, if these be motives weak, break off the times and every man hence to his idle bed. So let high-sided tyranny range on till each man drop by lottery. But if these, as I am sure they do, bear fire enough to kindle cowards and to steal with valor the melting spirits of women than countrymen. What need we any spur but our own cause to prick us to redress? What other bond than secret Romans that have spoke the word and will not palter? And what other oath than honesty to honesty engaged that this shall be or we will fall for it? 
Swear priests and cowards and men cautious, old feeble carrions and such suffering souls that welcome wrongs unto bad causes swear, such creatures as men doubt, but do not stain the even virtue of our enterprise, nor the insuppressive metal of our spirits, to think that or our cause or our performance did need an oath, when every drop of blood that every Roman bears and nobly bears is guilty of a several bastardy, if he do break the smallest particle of any promise that hath passed from him. It's, it's a really, it's, you know, and the thing I wrote was, uh, it has a whiff of the St. Crispin's Day speech, and instead of wishing for more men, the people are wishing, are asking for an oath. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's really fascinating that the, you can see sort of the structure that Shakespeare's using is very similar to the Christmas day. Yeah. And um, you know, I, when I was playing it, I, you know, he wrote it right before Hamlet. I, when I was, when I was playing the part, I thought, Oh, because a lot of the, particularly his, you know, Brutus's uh, speeches earlier in the play, um, uh, they have the same kind of, you know, moral, questioning the the should I or shouldn't I or why why do I why should I do this they're 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 less they're less existential and more about they're more legalese it's more like we're figuring out the moral there's a moral question but but how can we how can we reconcile it legally Mm -hmm. and the 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 rhetorical arguments and the way it, it it's just it's fascinating and I love this speech because this is at, this is the culmination of all of that. Why am I doing this? What, what, what is the, why should we do this? Why should I do this? And it's, there's as much uh, uh, convincing himself as there is convincing the, uh, uh, the fellow conspirators. And that's fascinating to me. Well, yeah, I, 100%, I agree. I, I think it's interesting just uh, in terms of, of your, your work on the speech, um, the big change came uh one, two, three, four, five, six lines in on the, but if these, as I am sure they do, um, and just to go wonky for a hot second, Garrett, I yeah. know, uh, that's a midline stop. Yep. Um, and you, you took that as sort of a spring into the next part of the speech. Um, is this something that you just do naturally at this point, or do you still do like parse um, and do scansion and all that kind of stuff. I, I do scansion. I'm, I'm a, look, I'm a scansion wonk too. I mean, this is, it's all, this is all technical stuff. I mean, it's, you know, he wrote in a form. He wrote in a particular form. And I believe that if you play that form, it, it, it does, it does all the work for you. It tells you where to suspend something. It tells you where to, where to uh, uh, create tension. That's, and that's what I love about this speech too, is that he has a lot of those where he's suspending an idea and then comes in with the, uh, uh, with the, um, uh, with the conclusion. It's, uh, it's so, it's so cool. I look for, I look for why, why something or why I would suspend this. I mean, he wrote it in this way, I have to figure out, okay, well, what does that mean? Why do I, why would I suspend that? Why would I hold that out? What's the effect? What's the, what's the power in letting something like that hang? But if these, and then the the punctuation next is, it's sort of a parenthetical, but it, it, it's, it's just so cool 
Mm-hmm. I, I have, I have, I have no other words for it, but it's yeah. looking at the structure and playing the structure is it's, it's, it's important because we have to make a distinction between this isn't, this isn't a contemporary piece. This isn't a contemporary play. It's not, not prose or anything like that. We have to honor what that is. And the way we honor it is figuring out, well, why is it suspended there? Why is there, why is there, um, why is it a half of half a half a phrase suspended at the end of this verse line? What does that mean? What can I do with that? How can I how can I keep the audience engaged with with this thought? Yeah, and the most amazing thing is that if you just honor it, mm-hmm. the audience is going to be suspended. I mean, that's yeah. how good the writing is. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Uh, and then the idea of the three questions in a row. It, mm-hmm. You know, the first one it starts with but if these, but like yeah. and. And uh, and then the answer it's it's almost like an if then proposition you know yeah yeah um, and to and what you know I think what's interesting for you when I heard you is that you were keeping that sort of question ball in the air until you landed the answer or mm-hmm. your the answer you were going to give so and that's that's no small feat well it's just I mean look again it's just the form it's the structure if you just play the structure if you just play the form it'll give you the energy it'll give you the you know, I had a professor years ago who I, who I loved, who said, you know, this work is simple, but it's not easy. And you have to get, you have to learn to get out of the way of it. You have to learn to just like, uh, I can't impose what I want to do on this. I have to look at the text and I have to read it and it has to tell me what needs to be done or what I need to do what my job is. And it, it's great because it actually takes some pressure off. It means that I don't have, it means I don't have to, it means I don't have to work as hard. I just have to work on doing this thing for real. Everything else is, is gravy. Well, this play is, is very timely, of course, mm-hmm. um, for, for obvious reasons. As an actor, when, you know, as we, as we age and gain hopefully in wisdom, but also um, in cynicism, I imagine it becomes harder and harder to fully invest ourselves in these characters that have these grand ideas and, and ideals, especially when we know that, um, that there is self-delusion. But we delude ourselves about everything. You know, I mean, we're human beings. We're, all, we're, we're in a constant state of self-delusion, I think, about, about a lot of things. So I, I don't think that, um, I mean, it's certainly a change from, from everyday life you know, to be able to play this kind of pretend, you know, where, where you get somebody who's written something really amazing for you to say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not an improv actor. So, you know, I can't, I can't think up, you know, great things uh, <laughs> as clearly as this interview is going. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't have great insight at, at my fingertips, you know, but to be able to play, uh, to play these guys who have, you know, to have a, a real kind of size and scope to their thinking and their um, uh, their point of view is it's challenging, and it is fun, and uh, endlessly compelling. Oh, what a beautiful way to bring us full circle! Yeah, thank you, Lynn. This thank has you been guys. a joy. Pleasure's mine. I'm Garrett Vandermeer, and I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to the State of Shakespeare. That's a wrap. Hey, Lynn. Thanks so much. Well, All thank right. you, gentlemen. Thank you. Pleasure Jim, to stay, meet you. Jim, stay on. I've got that. I want to share with you my 
my recent experience at the at the road trip. I'll see you guys. Okay. Take All care. Right. See you, Lynn. Bye, Lynn. So, um, so I went to the American Shakespeare Center in oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Virginia. It was great. Really. What'd you see? I saw something called Thrive, which was the oh, yeah. companion, you know, the Shakespeare's contemporaries, the new contemporaries of Shakespeare contest yep. where it's a contemporary play. We talked about all this with Yeah, you. yeah, yeah. I think it's Kevin great. Mitchell. Yeah, it was um and Thrive is based on it's it's a companion piece to Twelfth Night, but the relationship is very, very, very tangential. I mean, you can see how they kind of inform one another, mm-hmm. but it's definitely it, it's it's very much its own thing. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about the first woman to circumnavigate the globe. She was a oh. she was a botanist and you know an assistant to a much more powerful male who right. obviously got all of the credit and she was horribly horribly abused but it but it wasn't but but it was a, 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 what it was an uplifting story ultimately oh that's awesome yeah and super interesting and, and caroline and i um you know we were very tired that day and i i said hey if it's no good we got these tickets they're free if it's no good we'll just leave it intermission no harm and you know we at, at intermission we both decided we wanted to stay because we were invested in the story right so i think they good. did i think they did something right um yeah that they were charming actors versatile they do it in this in this theater which is the blackfriars theater blackfriars, I haven't, yeah haven't been to the one in london mm-hmm. which is probably a very faithful recreation because it's the same you know it's part of london's globe right they have two spaces right yeah so i don't know how it compares but i imagine very similar and it was done with you know universal lighting yeah so it's so op had, right yeah it's very op so they had you know chandeliers that illuminated the, both the stage and the audience very minimal very minimal you know stage magic went cool. into it so that's i like it was, that it was great but in a theater that hold i would just estimate it probably would hold 300 there were fewer than 50 mm. on a saturday night mm. so i think they're struggling struggling to yeah. come back from the pandemic but this town stanton virginia what a really cool town it's a very small mountain town in in virginia but a lot going on on this like two block stretch that's like the old town tourist that's cool touristy center uh really it's, worth like a getaway if you if you're ever i'm in i'm in yeah um i saw 12th night you did yes you're kidding so- me Carl Cofield's Twelfth Night, yes, and I ran into Ty Jones. That's so great. No, um, and it was—I have to say—it was good. It was entertaining. Lots of music. Lots of like they put in. Mm-hmm. They even played the Hey Nani Nani song that Festo mm-hmm. sings, um, but they updated the rhythms and the sound. Um, Olivia was delightful. Feste mm-hmm. was great. Belch and Aguchik stole the show. Like you hope they do. Yes, like you hope they yeah. do. And William saw his first Shakespeare production. So he came with his first. Yeah, it was his first time seeing Shakespeare. You're kidding. He, wow. he wasn't super interested, but um, at the end, he's, he said, he said, that was pretty cool. And I said, yeah, and this didn't even have any fights. And he went, there are fights in Shakespeare? And I was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then he asked questions. So that shows that he, he was picking something. Yeah. Yeah, well, if the clowns are doing their their job, then you know, Aguchik was killer. Kids are in. 
That's great. Yeah, he was he was played by a white guy who's trying to be black, so he had like hair that had like uh-huh. beads, like Bo Derek beads in the on his and, Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. He killed me. He killed me. Yeah. It was very funny. So That's great. Um, yeah, it was fun. So I was glad glad that we made it. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.